Well, we want to uh, jump into the second session now. And in many ways, this is the heart of what I want to get at today. And uh, no pun intended, but because I do want to address the issues of the heart. I enjoyed some conversations during the break. Uh, We are approachable. Come talk to us. My uh, new friend Blaze came up and said hi, and so we had a nice chat with Blaze. And uh, anyone else, just come come say hi to us. We uh, love to chat with you all. And those cards, we look forward to those questions. Okay, so let me um, begin with this, this question, and we're going to focus a lot on the issues of the heart during this session. What causes sinful Anger. So remember the four categories we talked about: God's anger, and then uh, which is righteous, the righteous anger of God, the righteous anger of Jesus Christ, who is God and man, and then the righteous anger of humans, other humans, and then the sinful anger. And that's what we want to focus here today. So why is this an important question for us to ask? Why should we spend some time thinking about the cause? Well, because It's not enough to change outward behavior that's insufficient. You can momentarily, or even for a short period of time, try to organize your behavior and discipline your behavior and add certain accountabilities. Um, Those who have been uh, perpetrators of domestic violence have sometimes had to go through various kinds of anger management But we think that the language of management is insufficient from a biblical perspective. We want interchange to occur. So just that outward change won't work. We're counseling, uh, Laura and I are counseling a couple right now, and that's been kind of a lot of ups and downs. There's uh, anger that has just persisted, and there'll be seasons where it seems to ebb and... We're encouraged by that and we're thinking, but then a next situation arises and feel like we're back to where we were. There's not been domestic violence, there's not been spousal violence, but there's been a lot of anger in that that home setting. So what causes this anger? Well, let me suggest some, some popular answers that the world would give us that don't flow, I believe, from Scripture. One would be past mistreatment. Past mistreatment, uh, dysfunctional families of origin, we might say. I'm angry because, and when you ask someone, you know, why are you angry, the first word will probably be the word because, since you're asking a why question. And you want, what do you want to listen for, and what I want to think about in my own responses, if you ask me why I'm angry, I want to know whether the next word is going to be someone else. Well, because my dad was angry, or because my dad did X, Y, or Z, and and I am assuming in a group this size that there are um, several, if not many of you, who grew up in a home where anger was expressed against you or against your mom. Um, And maybe more than just anger, but violence. And I, I, I understand that in a group this size. And so I'm going to double back and say how these things are needful for us to consider. 
But, but hear me at, at, at this point as to the way the causation language is, is brought about here. So because my dad was angry or because my mom was critical or because my uncle did this to me. That's one way that people answer this. And of course, there's all sorts of approaches therapeutically that the world would do to try to then go back into your uh, early years, your childhood, try to reconstruct things and, and things like that. Or, I guess the second answer could be present mistreatment. Various ways in which I'm currently being uh, abused, currently neglected. Here we think of, the, and we'll talk about needs later, uh, my unmet needs. My needs aren't being met, and that's why I'm angry. So why are you angry? Well, because my boss does something or doesn't do something. He bypassed me again for a promotion. He called me out in front of others. He docked my pay, whatever he did to me presently. Or because my wife or my husband or my fill-in-the-blank current relationships. Or because my pastor or my pastors. And pastors, you and I are not immune because my members don't. So I pastored a small, small church there in West Virginia for almost 19 years we were there. Work day. Work day. Work day. For crying out loud. It's only once a year or maybe twice a year. For crying out loud. We just asked you for a couple hours. After all, it's not my church. It's your church. You know, pastor doesn't own the church. We're congregationalists. It's your body. I just think of those anger moments, like no one shows up. Well, we all have those provocations of people who don't do what we want them to do. And so what's going to be the accompanying therapy approach? We want to try to get those needs met somehow, or let's help that person to get their needs met. Let's come up with a better way to get those needs met. That's the approach that is often taken. Or situational pressures. Maybe not so much someone doing anything against me, but just there's so much on my plate. So many work pressures. And uh, children and in-laws and parents. Did I say in-laws? <laughs> Even the weather can be an irritant for us. Just the circumstances and situations that, that, that we face. Um, I, I talk with students uh, and they tell me how busy their life is, and how hard life is. And these are single folks, many of them. And, or maybe they're just newly married. Oh, so much time pressure. They say, have you talked to any married people recently with kids? <laughs> all right, so it doesn't get easier, and we all know that. The stresses continue. Um, worldly influences, evil friends, ungodly media, 
when they took the Bible out of the public schools. That's where anger began. Huh? Not really. I had a friend who asked, so exactly how much MTV did Cain watch before he killed Abel? (laughs) It's that gangster rap. That's the reason. I don't think so. No. Um, The devil. The devil made me do it, right? Some of you remember the old laugh-in things, if you're old enough to remember that. Um, But we we take this very seriously. But it's a causation. Did the devil make me angry? Is there a demon of anger with that kind of name that needs to be cast out of you or your friend inhabiting demons or, or territorial spirits. There's kind of a demon over, over the Lancaster region or something like that. Is that what's going on? And that's why there's anger or murder going on? Um, physical factors, injuries, disabilities, um, hormones. I didn't laugh, but ladies, you can laugh. It's okay. PMS, PMDD. <laughs> yeah, I mean, these are, these are real things. There are factors. Um, being a teenager, developmental things. Teenage rebellion. Well, what is teenage rebellion? It's rebellion. Committed by a teenager. It's still the issue of the heart here. It's not a different category. Even if some might call it oppositional defiance disorder or some kind of language like that. It's still a description of what's actually going on inside. So how do we view these factors? Now some more than others. I gave a long list of different factors that people might use to explain why someone is angry. Past or present mistreatment. Pressures upon you. Worldly examples, worldly influences, the devil, physical things, hormonal things, other um, physical factors. These are all factors. And these are factors that can exert enormous impact. These pressures can be real and they can be very hard. And because of these things, God shows compassion on people who suffer in the ways that I just listed. In fact, all of these are forms of suffering to some degree or another. It's not the same as being martyred or persecuted for your faith necessarily, but there are pressures that people face, and I've listed many of them, and and therefore God shows compassion, and so should we. I know some of you have have maybe studied a little bit on biblical counseling over the decades since it's been around, and the modern movement, and I think some of us recognize, who've been doing this for a while, that in many ways the biblical counseling movement in its early phases has not been as as concerned about uh, exercising compassion. Certainly been criticized a lot in that way, and some of it we've brought it upon ourselves. I say we because I've been part of that for a while. And I think we've at times been unkind and haven't focused we're very good at blame sh- uh, dealing with blame shifting. 
Yet there is nevertheless true hardships that people face. And I think we need to keep those in mind. But now the flip side. But they cannot cause anger. I would say it this way, that these circumstantial factors, all of the ones I've listed for you in that first uh, point there, are important and they're influential, but they're not causative or determinative or ultimate. I'll actually repeat that. They're important, they're influential, they're factors to deal with, but they're not causative or determinative or ultimate. They cannot make you angry. They can tempt you. They can provoke you. They can invite you. They can model for you anger. They can't create within you anger. So we'll have to see where that comes from. So, so God doesn't uh, excuse our anger because of these factors, but there is a recognition that these factors make it harder for us. And so when people uh, sin against you, when you're family members and your friends or your boss or your church members or church leaders or small group people fail you, yeah, you're, you're provoked, you're tempted. But the good news of the gospel is that these are not causative. They don't make you that way. Um, if I can just say a few more comments about the biblical counseling world at this point there. I think biblical counseling historically... Uh, by that, I mean the modern movement, starting with Jay Adamson, you know, the late 60s and 70s, 1970s, was very good at, and continues, I hope, to be good at, exposing blame shifts, um, which actually brings hope to people, as I'll try to demonstrate as we go forward. But also, I don't think we have been as good at recognizing the, the, the suffering. And here's why this is important. We would say you cannot blame your anger on what is happening or has happened to you. But guess what? You don't have to. You don't need to. You're not a victim. You've been victimized. Think of an action, a verb of victimization. But that's not the same as a capital V on your chest. That's not an identity. It's something that's happened to you when someone mistreats you. But it doesn't make you with a new identity. And of course, we get that with the gospel because we know that we have a new identity. We're sons and daughters of God. We are joint heirs, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We have a brand new identity. Now, Christians who have that new identity, yeah, we can be victimized. Things can happen to us. But here's the hope. Not only, not only can't you blame other people for your anger, you don't have to. In Christ, there's a new freedom. You can respond differently. Even in the midst of this, these provocations, we can learn to handle them in non-angry ways. Jesus had these factors, not, not every one of them in the same way, I realize, but if you look at our life of our Lord Jesus, think of these factors, certainly tons of present mistreatment against him and pressures, you got crowds demanding him, 
to, to feed them. And they want to make him king. He's de- they're demanding, a lot of demands against Jesus. Pressures upon him. All sorts of worldly influences. And, you know, the devil himself with a full force attack directly in ways that we've not experienced that. And yet, with the power of the Holy Spirit and as himself being God and in the, 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 the trust of his Father, in his Father he's able to handle these things. All right, so popular answers from the world. I've mentioned many of them there. How should we view them? Come concurrently with a kind of compassion, as I think God shows, and yet a recognition that we cannot blame other factors. Well, then where does it come from? Well, I trust you probably are familiar here in this church with James chapter 4. So let's think about that. God's answer from James chapter 4. And let's see what's really going on inside our heart. James chapter 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your husband who... Sorry, I guess I misread that. Don't they come from your children? Oh, misread it again. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Those desires that are at war within you. Verse 2. You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Let's unpack this. First observation I'd make of this passage is James is describing angry people. And even though the English versions aren't using the language or the term anger, they're using terms that would um, suggest anger here. Fights, quarrels, even murder. Now, I don't know whether that means actual homicide being committed among the professing Christian body to whom James is writing. I don't know. It could be simply he's doing what our Lord Jesus does in Matthew chapter 5, where he says that your uh, inner anger is the moral equivalent of murder. I don't know exactly what James is, is saying there, but it's pretty serious stuff when he talks about killing and coveting, fights and quarrels and If you were to look down later in the passage, uh, verse 12 talks about playing God and slander and judging people. Again, that universal problem that James is addressing here. So he describes this anger problem. And then the second thing I observe is he addresses angry, he addresses the cause of anger. The cause. What, What causes fights and quarrels? James is not a behaviorist. James is not a moralist. James is not an externalist. That all he's concerned about is the outward behavior. No, no. James is concerned about the heart cause. I'm afraid there are times where I think I know how I would have written this if I was writing it. Um, 
Dear brothers, sisters, I hear there are quarrels among you. Stop it! I, I say that because I am a dad and I can remember having our sons when they were living with us when they were younger. And I could just remember times when they would fight and quarrel. I might be sitting in my office getting some work done and they're out in the hallway and I hear them yelling at each other, angry with each other. Uh, Friends, I wish I could tell you this is how it went down. I wish I could tell you I rose from my chair, empowered by the Spirit, and I approached them and said, Oh, sons of mine, why do you so dishonor the Lord your God? violating the first great commandment and also the second great commandment. I wish that was my heart. Will you guys stop it? I don't know if I ever cussed. I don't know if I did. I don't remember. I don't think so. But uh, you don't have to have cuss words to have a cussing heart, right? Yeah, I think I had a cussing heart going on. What's going on inside here? Um, (laughs) I live with my grandmother, Grandma Kresge, in uh, Ocean Grove, New Jersey. And uh, she would always remind me, Bobby, if you're going to pull the weeds out, you got to get to the roots because those dandelions are just going to come back. You got to get the roots. And I hated the roots. It's easy to pluck the the tops off those things. You do that quickly. No, we've got to get down to the cause. Why is this anger coming out? Why are these fights and conflicts occurring? Well, third observation, James here roots the cause of anger in our sinful desires. That seems to be his, one of the words he uses here. Now, there's actually four different words he uses. I won't get into that today. I do mention those words in the Uprooting Anger book. Um, sinful desires, again, not from your husband, your wife, your job but within you. So I said James is not a behaviorist, but, but he's also not a, a, a neo-Freudian uh, therapist, psychologist, who, who wants to kind of search for some deeper lurking motive issues within the, the mysterious interplay of, of the subconscious. I, I don't think that's what's going on here. This is quite simple. You will not find a more simple sentence to describe the problem of anger than verse 2. Simple, clear, by which I mean clear, but profound, deeply profound. You want something, but don't get it. There it is. You want something, but don't get it. So, Lauren and I have created this little thing that that I would call the chorus of the demanding heart. Here's the explanation. Here's here's the issue. Hmm. I want what I want when I want it. And when I want it, it better be there. I want what I want when I want it. And when I want it, it better be there. Are you all singing people, Steve? (laughs) All right, well, join me. Now, listen, if you're clapping, that means you're ready to do... I'm going to clap for you in a minute, brother. 
I want what I want when I want it, and when I want it, it better be there. I want what I want when I want it, and when I want it, it better be there. That is, uh, I'm not replacing you, by the way. <laughs> that is the, the course of the demanding heart. Hey, it's funny, I, I, I've taught this various times over the years. I'll tell you two stories. One was uh, uh, doing this in a, in, in a church and with teenage, uh, a, a student group, a youth group. And parents coming up to me a week later and say, my daughter's been humming this song about something she wants. What, what is that about? Oh, I told. The other time, I love doing this when I get a chance to go to uh, Brazil. I go to Brazil a lot. I like going there and ministering. And uh, I've done this to interpreters many a time. I haven't warned them. And I'm just going to break right. I just did with you. I want, and I'll go ahead. So the poor Brazilian doesn't know what to do with that. Uh, I did this in one setting, though, and uh, one of the students, I was teaching in a seminary there, one of the students is a piano player. I didn't know this. And I taught it. We went for lunch break. I came back for the, for the lunch, and there she is at the piano. She's got the tune. She wrote out the notes for me. And, uh, and uh, the guy helped me. We sang it in, in Portuguese. I think that's what's going on here. Is that not simple and clear and yet very profound? The profundity here is this. You don't have to kind of search for something that's only accessible by a therapist. It's right there. Here's why you're angry. You're not getting what you want. I'm not getting what I want. Now, I asked you earlier today, just think about a situation, maybe very recent. Now, can you apply that little question? What is it I was wanting right at that time? I wanted my, fill in the name of the blank of the person, the person, the, my son, daughter, whoever, my spouse, my boss, to do what? What is it that I was wanting but not getting at that point? A deeply diagnostic question that can really help all of us, I think, to learn how to, to see what's really going on in the heart. Here's what's even more interesting. I'm sticking still with this point three. This word, these words translated here in your in ESV and different versions are going to say similar terms, slightly different, but they're all, they're all coming from about four different actually Greek uh, words that we could explore. Desires, pleasures, wants, whatever. This word translated desire here is the Greek word... Uh, you don't know this, obviously, but uh, epithumia. It's, it's just, I'm just letting you know there's a particular word here. But what's interesting is these words are used in the Bible itself or in the ancient literature of the day, the, the popular Greek of the day, for desires that are not always ungodly. They're often used for godly desires, or at least neutral desires that aren't really good or bad, per se. So our Lord Jesus says, as Luke records in Luke twenty-two fifteen, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. 1 Timothy 3, 1, if anyone sets his heart on being an oversire, he desires. These are uses of the word desire that are good. 
These are not deep, hidden, inaccessible things. These are things that are just very clear. Now, that takes me to the fourth point, and I'll double back and talk about this matter. These sinful desires are not necessarily desires for evil things. Not necessarily desires for evil things. But selfish, inordinate, ruling desires. Ruling desires for good things. And here we have what we might call this this good desire slash bad master dynamic going on. When is a desire sinful? Well, there's kind of a, one obvious category when you desire something that's wrong, that's forbidden, that's illegal, that's immoral. Uh, as I've done marriage counseling for a while now, I have never yet had a couple where maybe they're struggling financially, where the wife says this to me, Bob, would you please get my husband to rob the bank next door to our house? I've seen it done on TV. If he were just to tunnel down, kind of tunnel over and come up on the other side and get in that way, please get him to rob the bank. Well, I don't run into that very often or ever. Moral people usually want things that are good things. It's not a bad thing to want your order to be placed right. Steve, I'm going to be using this all day. Because <laughs> it's really a classic example, and all of us have been there. Is it a wrong thing to want your spouse to treat you a certain way and your kids to respect you? No, these are all good, good things. They're not forbidden. And so the second way I think a desire can be wrong is when you desire a good thing too much, inordinately. It's ruling you. It's controlling you. It's taken upon a life of itself. It's got you by the throat. It's seizing you. I can remember sitting at the bedside of my uh, son, younger son, Daniel. I don't know how old he would have been, but you know, three or four Angry at his brother, his older brother, for taking some toys or whatever. And I just remember putting my hand on Dan and said, This desire's got you by the throat, Dan. And he kind of laughed a little bit. And it's controlling you. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you could get to the place where what that toy was that you wanted is something that you would still desire and, and appreciate, but you didn't have to have it? How freeing would that be for you? Four or five-year-olds get it? Not yet, but that's why we nurture and, and help them to get it as they grow. So what's going on in this passage? What kind of desire is going on here? Well, I want you to notice something very important about the passage, and sometimes it's things that I think we overlook. So look back at verse 2 here. Um, Laura, can you put it back up on the screen, dearie? Backtrack, and then we'll just go forward. Um, You don't have the... uh, You trying to go backwards? Go go back to the passage I meant, dear. 
Here you go. Thanks. So you do have the little number there. We, we preserve that. Based on verse 2, I'm going to make kind of like a thesis statement. And I want you to tell me why. And you all can speak up here. I'd like to hear from you, actually. Uh, here's the thesis. James is not saying at this point that the object itself is evil. James is not saying the object that they want is an evil thing. Now, by the way, we don't know what the object that they wanted. Several commentators make various suggestions. I'll give you one here in a little bit. But why do I say that? And based on verse 2, why do I say that the thing that they wanted was not an evil thing? It's not like, will you get my husband to rob the bank? Why do I say that? You can speak. Okay, it is. We don't know exactly what that thing is, so it could be a good or a bad. I, I want to say to you that I th think it's not a bad thing, and it's actually a good thing. And why do I say it's a good thing? Whatever it is. What do you think? Go ahead. Okay, good, yeah. Yes, very good, very good. James here holds out the possibility that God might give you this thing. Now, here's what we know about God. He's not going to give us an evil thing. Now, in his providence, he allows hardships to come, etc. We understand that. We understand his sovereignty in that. But what son who wants fish does the father give a scorpion or a snake? What son who wants bread... Does the father give him a stone? Jesus said, even earthly fathers don't do that. How much more does your heavenly father love you and care for you? No, this thing they wanted is not necessarily an evil thing. Uh, some commentators have suggested wisdom during trial. That would be a good thing. Some have suggested money. Because in verse 3 it talks about that you might spend, the verb spend. So that makes sense too. Because we know, right, that money is, a, is the root of all evil, right? I thought you told me they were Bible believing. It's the love of money. It's not money. Love of money. Which, by the way, it's, it's a root, not the root. I always wonder if there's sort of a Marxist interpretation that kind of fits in to make... There's no definite article there. It's a root. It's not the only. There's plenty of other roots of evil, right, going on that are not just money there, but it's a root of all kinds of evil. Well, that's what the text is telling us. Now, if this is true, that what James is talking about is not an evil thing, something that if you ask God for and if you ask God rightly for, and we need other verses to have a theology of prayer. We don't want to just build a theology of prayer on these two verses, right? So I'm not trying to get into the theology of prayer today. But my point being today is that if, if you have this right kind of prayer, God might give you the thing. It's not a bad thing. We'll now go back to some of our common illustrations. It's not a bad thing to want an order to be done rightly. And it's not a bad thing for your spouse to treat you nicely or your kids to be this way. These are good things. James gets that. So where do the fights in Carl's come from? 
These things are not only desires, but they've become at war within you. They've become inter- they become turfed. They become embedded. This is warfare imagery here. You've, you've, you've drawn that line. I need this thing. I have to have this thing. I'm not letting go of it. And that's where the anger is coming from. And uh, you can see all sorts of examples throughout the Bible of this matter of good desires become bad masters. Here's how Paul Tripp puts it. James encourages us to examine our desires because it is the only way to understand our anger. Desire lies at the base of every angry feeling, word, and action. And I I think he's right there. A desire that becomes inordinate. How do we identify and expose these angry anger-causing demands. What are some criteria that we can use to make that assessment about ourselves? Well, I would suggest to you three, three criteria. When this desired thing consumes me, when I obsess over it. Some people have called this the shower test. Taking a shower is a very mindless thing to do. By now, most of us have the soap and shampoo thing down, right? So where does your mind go? I sure wish she would. I sure wish he would. I sure wish they would. Or maybe kind of when you're driving on a, a nice, clear, open road here in farm country. You don't have a lot of traffic coming to hit you. You know, where does your just mind go? What do you think about? When you get up in the morning, you know, what is it that you're wanting your f- spouse, your friend, your boss to do? And throughout the day, and you think about it, where, where, where are you obsessing over something that might not be a bad thing? I want to keep saying that here. It's not a bad thing, but it's gotten a hold of you. It's gotten a control of your, your heart. So when it consumes me, when I sin to get that thing, that's a second question, you know, criteria. When I sin to get it, do I manipulate you? Do I try to, try to make you feel guilty somehow? Like, do I guilt you, guilt trip you? Do I pressure you to act a certain way? That's a good sign that this thing's got a hold of you. What is it that you're wanting so much that you're going to manipulate and pressure people to perform to do what you want? Thirdly, when I sin, if I don't get it, if I don't get that thing, do I sin? Maybe I pull away from you. I'm going to take my toys and go home. Forget you. Stuff we did when we were kids. And you would hope that adulthood would remove that from us, but it doesn't. It just makes it more sophisticated and less obvious. Besides, when kids do it, the next day they're back playing with each other. Or the next hour they're back playing with each other again. They don't hold grudges the way we do. And so I might pull away from you. I might uh, 
I, th- I think of those times when people are having a conflict maybe within a, a church. Maybe they're on a ministry team or a committee or whatever you would call the group of people trying to work together on something. And, uh, maybe they, they, they sing. But there's a conflict. And then they say to me things like, you know, I wonder if the Lord might be leading me into another ministry. Well, I don't know if it's the Lord leading you into another ministry. Well, this is a, you know, this is a church that's not, you can fill in the blank, three words, meeting my needs. This is a church that's not meeting my needs. And so I want something, I'm not getting it, what am I going to do? I'm going to pull away. All sorts of ways that we exercise this kind of pulling away. But then what if I assume when I don't get it? Maybe instead, if I can think of, uh, instead of the escape responses, as Ken Sandy would talk about, the attack responses. I'll go after you. I'll yell at you. I'll hurt you in some way. Maybe I'll gossip about you. Or maybe it becomes physical and violence. This is why anger management is insufficient, right? This is why we need the gospel. That's the only thing that's going to change, change the heart of a person. So I've given you some sample questions that might help you to think about, kind of fill in the blanks. When you're angry, and by the way, this works with all sorts of problem areas. And I would use it the same thing if you're in a conflict with someone, if you're depressed or sad, if you're afraid, fearful. Fill in the blank. I must have, I, I, I need, I deserve, I demand. Uh, I expect, we could say the word expect at this point as well as a synonym of all that. I expect whoever it is, the person uh, who, I, I need a person who loves me, listens to me, cares for me, spends time with me, obeys me. If you're a parent, you might say that about your children. I must have, I need, I demand, I expect. All these are synonymous words. Uh, not just desires, but something stronger than that. One of my uh, uh, longtime executive director of CCEF, Christian Council Educational Foundation, uh, John Bettler, who was one of my profs at Westminster, would put it this way. A person has power over you. A person has power over you. Whenever that person has something you think you need or that you desperately want, that person has power over you. Let's say that I desire, I need, it's desire that's controlling my heart wrongly. I need my son to respect me. I didn't say outwardly comply where I can maybe create that through discipline and structure and all that. But to respect me from the heart. That son has power over me. Because... If he were to respect me and honor me, I'm happy. And when he doesn't, I'm sad or I'm angry or I'm depressed. He's got power over me. How did he get the power? Did he seize it? Did he usurp it? No. I've yielded it to him. I've given him that power. How did I give him that power? By in my heart demanding that he treat me a certain way. And when that person doesn't treat me a certain way, what? They have power over me. Power to me to raise me up or lower me. 
what I think I need or what I desperately want is. Fill in the blank. Uh, I I think of that lady that I counseled. Um, I can kind of see her in my mind's eye across, um, across from the table there. And every time she'd come to a session, I could tell something about what's going on in the home by her countenance. She would come in happy. And when she came in happy, she had just had a good reconciling time with her husband. Her husband was threatening to leave her, actually did leave a time or two for the night. He probably wasn't a Christian. She probably was a Christian, but wasn't even that clear. So, you know, she would just be happy when that happened. And then when he leave for the night and take some clothes and he's, she's angry up and down. And here's the way I would phrase it with her, that you are like the, the spool at the end of the yo-yo string, the wooden or plastic spool at the end. And you are one day up and the next day down. And here's why you're up and down. It's because you've tied your heart to the finger of your husband. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you could come to that place where you would tie the string of your heart, not to your husband, but to someone who says, I will never leave you and will never forsake you, who will love you constantly and deeply so much that he will die for you. And even when he challenges you and confronts you, it's clearly because he loves you. If you could tie your string, your heart to that person, your to that finger. Wouldn't that be great? And again, trying to give her a vision of the gospel, of enchanting her with Christ as the answer. Let me use a diagram that I use uh, a lot in ministry. It's called the throne staircase diagram. So we begin with letters there, A, B, C, and D. What are those letters? Those letters represent desires for good things. Now, you want your husband to rob the bank? This illustration doesn't work. This is for desired good things. And, uh, you know, A, B, C, D, whatever they are, got I want my spouse to, I want my children to, I want my boss to, I want my employees to. Okay. Now, these are happening within your heart. We're now going to understand that these desires are under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So let's put that throne up there. Now, what you have here is a picture of a godly heart. A heart where you have desires that are unmet that are good, but notice where they're placed in relationship with the throne of Jesus Christ. They're sub, right, submarine under. They're submitted. They're subordinate. They are yielded to the Lord Jesus as your master and king. That's a healthy human heart. I think of our Lord himself at this point. In the Garden of Gethsemane, I think of our Lord having uh, two desires I think we could look at in the Garden of Gethsemane. One would be a desire that his disciples would stay awake 
And uh, three times, they fall asleep. Okay, okay. Um, I don't know. We don't have, we don't know what our Lord's, we don't have a video, right? But I'm sure disappointment would be a fair term. Desiring that they would stay awake, and they didn't in his hour of need. But that's a healthy human heart. The other thing that's probably more prominent there is his desire to not have to drink the cup of wrath, the wrath of God to be poured out, poured out upon the nations. You see this throughout the Old Testament prophets, the description of drinking the wrath, the cup. And so what does he say? Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass. In his humanity, here's that wonderful mixture of the divine human Uh, He desires not to have to drink the wrath of of God upon the nations. That's a good desire, legitimate, understandable. What does he do with that desire? He submits it. He subordinates it. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he goes to the cross in obedience to his Father. Healthy human heart. We see it in Jesus. We see it in times when... In the Bible, we see godly people handling. We see Joseph submitting to all the the suffering he undergoes in Genesis. All right, well, here's the problem now. Let's add the staircase. Here's the problem. I wish I had a laser pointer, but I can just get a little closer and sort of like, well, I guess that's not going to work. But, you know, I just want, here's what happens. This is the throne to kind of take us up to the heart. Letter, letter D, sprouts legs. If you're taking notes, put a pair of legs under letter D. Letter D does not remain submitted. Letter D begins to get a life of its own. Letter D begins to climb the throne of the heart. And so you can even draw little arrows up to the step, 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 right up to the heart. That's letter D doing that. There's a sense in which we'd say these, these things have taken on a life of their own. Uh, they've become steroidal. This is letter D on steroids. I know about steroids. As I was telling during the break, I'm a New York Yankees baseball fan. So I know a little bit about steroids. <sighs> Climbing the throne of the heart. To the point where it's seeking to compete functionally with the lordship of Jesus at that moment in that situation. Christ is still my king. It's the flesh spirit war. We haven't lost our salvation. This is not apostasy. Although it could be. It could become that. Where false faith could actually be exposed through this. But typically for us who are in Christ, what we see here is just that wrestling of the flesh and spirit. And we're competing with Christ for lordship. How I'm going to speak to my son, my spouse, my friend. Now go back to the incident that I've asked you to think about. What is it you're wanting so much? Likely it was a a good thing. Likely it fits A, B, C, or D. Now do you see how it spiked? You see how it went quadrophenic uh, sound-wise? Surround sound? I, I, 
You go to these movie theaters, like 30 years ago, there's a little speaker up there. Now you're like, the whole place is going. I, I refuse to go to those thriller movies, I think. I think I'd be scared. I haven't hit any of those big monster-type movies in a real theater with surround sound. And something has just grabbed a control here. What is it for you? You see how you've climbed a throne? Now, one of the things about the visual, if you draw the lines and go up there, is you, I can intercept this at any point. Where, where do I need to stop it? The place to stop it is when the legs appear, where the thing begins its ascent, where it begins to climb. What should you do about the sinful anger? Well, there's four steps, and uh, the, the fourth one we're going to unpack in the third session with some things. So let me just walk you through these, these three, and we'll look at a passage or two here. Uh, first, I need to recognize the source. Recognize the source. The source of my anger is letter D that has sprouted legs. Letter D, that's a good desire that is not remaining submitted to the lordship of Jesus. The providence of God. God in his providence hasn't given you that thing you desire. And your demanding heart then is where the anger is coming from. So recognize the source, recognize the ascent, the climbingness of this letter. Secondly, repent on both the heart and behavioral levels. Repent of what? A, B, C, D? Repent of D? No. That's a legitimate desire. Repent of the leg sproutiness of D. Repent of the climbingness of D. Repent of the ascendingness of D. Repent of the way you've not kept that desire submitted to our Lord and you've allowed it to control your soul and produce that angry response. Joel chapter 2 gives us a very powerful picture of repentance. It's a judgment that God's bringing on his people and it's one of those books where there's a lot of judgment and yet there's this beautiful ray of hope that comes out in chapter 2. Chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, not a lot of hope. Very dark sky. But light breaks through in Joel chapter 2. Starting in verse 11, the Lord thunders at the head of his army. A, a, a locust invasion is what's going on there. The Lord thunders. Who's, who's bringing the locusts? It's the Lord. His forces are beyond number and mighty are those who obey his command. The day of the Lord is great, it is dreadful. Who can endure it? That's a very hopeless picture in verse 11. Joel 2 verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, tear your heart, rip your heart, and not your garments. Garments, ripping of the garments, a symbolic way to express grief, mourning, and repentance in the ancient world. I don't want your heart ripped. I don't want your garments ripped. I want your heart ripped. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Two things to observe here from Joel chapter 2 about repentance. 
First of all, it's a call here to wholehearted repentance. Well, Lauren and I sat yesterday at Panera Bread in, uh, somewhere in Maryland and met a very dear friend of ours, longtime pastor, older than us, very mature, a wise brother, someone I've looked to. When I, we pastored together in West Virginia for years. Uh, a PCA pastor, some of my closest friends when I was an evangelical free church pastor in, in West Virginia. My closest friends were PCA pastors because they, they had the gospel and the doctrines of God's grace and sovereignty and uh, serious about eldership and things like that. So he was one of those guys. And uh, uh, Laura and I were sitting at a restaurant one time with them and uh, my workaholic, uh, the neglect of her, came out. And um, this guy was a bit of a bulldog. Uh, we, I would help him counsel some of his members and uh, it was bad cop, good cop. He, he, that was his phrase. He was the bad cop, I was the good cop, right? And uh, so I would kind of bring up maybe a little lighter note of compassion or whatever. But, but he was, my, my friend was a bulldog, and uh, he said, Bob, we need to talk. And the next thing I remember, I woke up the next day in the, his counseling office. <laughs> it really had that feel to it. And uh, he gave me some homework to work on. I did my homework, as any dutiful counselee should. And I came back and presented him my homework. Here it is, I did it. And he looks me in the eye and says, Bob, I don't think your heart was in it. And he was right. He was right. Um, wholehearted call here to, to deepen repentance. But here's the other thing you want to see about Joel, and this is the hope for us today. It's related to the grace of God. It's in the context of the grace of God. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he will become gracious and compassionate if you repent. No, no. For he is gracious and compassionate. The only reason any of us would come to Christ initially is because we believe that God so loved the world that he gave his son for us. You're not going to return to a God that you think will reject you. You won't. And good news, you don't have to. Because if you come back to that God in the midst of your sin, he is already gracious and compassionate. It predated your repentance. His grace predates it. That's the gospel assurance that we have. And so, we come back to him, we repent What is repentance in this visual model here? Repentance in this model is dethroning. It's de-escalating. It's cutting out the legs that have sprouted. We dethrone those demands that are climbing the throne of our heart and we are resubmitting them to the Lord Jesus The third movement here is to refocus on God and on his grace and his provisions and and his promises in Jesus Christ. To refocus on God. One of my favorite passages is the privilege I get to unpack tomorrow, Hebrews chapter 4, here with you all. I so look forward to this. Hebrews chapter 4. 
Let, let me just mention one other passage. I have this printed out in my notes so you don't have to turn to it. But the, the great story of Martha and Mary, right, in Luke chapter 10. Refocus on God and his grace and provisions and promises in Christ. What is it that Jesus observes? He sees Martha, or Luke tells us that Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to Jesus and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by himself? Tell her to help me. Now, there's two things about our dear sister here that I wonder about. First of all, there's a, there's a tone of accusation in the way this is written for us here. Lord, don't you care that my sister... Um, honest, if we're honest with God, I think that's sometimes our frame of mind. Lord, you evidently don't care about me, or I wouldn't be going through X, Y, or Z hardship. Instead of starting with, here's what the Bible tells us, God is good. Now, just because you and I can't figure out how the goodness of God is playing out right now and how it's going to be seen doesn't deny the fact he is good. We start with what Scripture reveals to us and we work our experience in light of the Word, not the other way around. That's the first thing. The other thing I observe is calling him Lord and then issuing a command. Lord, don't you care? Tell her to help me. Lord, tell her. Wait a minute. You don't say Lord and command. You just don't didn't do that. But here's the beautiful response. Martha, Martha. And I think that's endearing. I, I don't think that's a, 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 an angry thing. The Lord answered, You are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better and will not be taken away from her. Mary has found the one thing that's needed the one thing that is truly satisfying, the one thing that is permanent and will not be taken away from her, even though circumstances may may ebb and flow. Refocus on God. What has God already given you? Yes, you're not getting that thing you want. The person doesn't treat you the way you want. But instead of that anger response, Lord, you have given me in Jesus Christ. I don't need, I don't need this thing. Because there's the one thing that I do truly need, and you've already given it. It's yourself. Well, after we take our our lunch break, we'll look at the fourth one here. I'll give it to you now, just so you know where we're heading, and then we'll unpack this one during the third session. And so number four in our flow here of movement is to replace sinful anger with Christ-like attitudes and Christ-like actions. 